listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We are your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today on the show we have Scott Bradley. We are so excited to talk with you, Scott. So Scott is a writer and theater artist best known for Chicago's long-running cult musicals Alien Queen, Carpenter's Halloween, and We Three Wises. His solo show Packing premiered in Chicago in 2019 and streamed to national audiences in 2020. He's hard at work right now on an immersive rock opera about the birth of gay leather culture. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's so fun to get to talk to you. I know that we feel the same way. So um, we like to start off every interview with your earliest memories. So what was your life like before theater? It was dark and scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I, uh, earliest memories, it's funny, I, um, but my sort of, my two earliest memories, um, I have uh, an earliest memory of sitting on a pony um, wow. uh, and holding, uh, with my mom holding onto my thigh, um, mm-hmm. when I was about, I don't know, probably three and a half, um, uh, walking around this pasture in Iowa where I'm from. Um, and that, I just remember how peaceful that was, mm-hmm. um, and how much joy I got from that. Um, and feeling, um, yeah, I mean, I have a huge affinity to horses and having grown up with them and. Um, so that was a really, that's really, that was really pivotal to me. And, uh, and the other thing then that I have, um, of that earliest time is that my, so my mother, um, my mother had, uh, uh, had a a baby die soon after about when about, about that time, actually about three years when I was about three years old. Um, there was only, only lived a couple of hours. Um, and my mother went into some pretty terrible depression, mm-hmm. um, during that period. And, uh, and I was left home with her. Of course, my dad was working. My dad worked outside of the house. And, and so I started, um, uh, pretending to be different people to make her laugh. Wow. So that started pretty early. And so that became a, a thing. And so I would um, pull out like her old wig and come to the dinner table as somebody, or I would <laughs> grab one of my dad's hats and be somebody else. And so that became uh, kind of a game for us. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, I, it was my way of trying to, um, uh, entertained my mother to get her out of that depression. But I remember that really distinctly. Um, and I know that it was before I was, I know that it was between three and four because, uh, we moved when I was four to a different house, but I distinctly remember that happening in that old house that we lived in until I was four. Yeah. I mean, that's such an incredible (laughs) origin story for you as a performer. Yeah. Um, as such a young child with this strong desire to make your mother laugh. Yeah. 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 So that's where, that's, uh, where, uh, much of, uh, the Scott Bradley, uh, (laughs) drama and trauma comes from really. (laughs) So then how, how, when did you first discover theater? 
I first discovered theater. Um, I think uh, in elementary school, uh, you know, we would do the silly plays and things uh, in fourth, fifth grade, um, little presentations, and I was all about it. Um, I was all about getting up and uh, and uh, becoming other people. I still, it was a it was a big thing for me. I found um, I found the need to escape into some other into other characters into other beings really. So mm. I pretended to be a lot of other yeah. people. So any chance I got to go pretend yeah. to be somebody else um, yeah. was. Um, uh, it was always it was always a place that let me forget that, uh, you know, I grew up in a pretty, um, my dad was an alcoholic. And so, you know, I have one of those sort of home lives that were, I was ready to escape um, that world a lot. And so, a lot, so I was ready to go. So you got a little play to put on. I will do it. I will be Sam I am in that <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Seuss green eggs and ham presentation. You know, I was ready to be Sam. Um so yeah, that's where I I just remember jumping at any of those opportunities, and then Jesus Christ Superstar, Ooh. Um, which tends to be I, I I find out as I talk to other people who work in musical in the musical realm that Jesus Christ Superstar happens to be one of those touchstones for a lot of us, hmm. and particularly of my age. So. Um, I'm in my 50s now, and that was a show that when I was a kid, um, it came out in the movie theater, and then it was it was put on television soon after it came out in the movie theater, and my mother was so excited about it, and I remember watching it and thinking, oh my gosh, I want to do that. Like, mm. that's something you can do? You can, like, you can be in that? Um, you can make that kind of thing? Um, and so that really... Got me. So then I, I would go to the library and I would check out Jesus Christ Superstar. And then I discovered Chorus Line, the album. I had no idea about it, but it looked like a cool album cover. <laughs> so I took it home and I played those two albums and I told my mom that I'd lost them um, so that uh, I never had to give them back <laughs> to the library. <laughs> which I, you know how does a child lose those albums but um i listened to those non-stop like i knew the words to all of it wow and so what was it about jesus christ Stup superstar in particular that you were like that made you want to do that can you name what was in that show that was so exciting to you i think it was the you know that uh, for me, for my family, being raised Christian, although not highly religious at that time, um, the Jesus story was is something I knew, right? I sort of knew the bullet points of that story, but to hear it from the side of the very human, um, um, with with failings, Judas, right? Yeah. Like to see the perspective from that side, I would say uh, I don't know. It gave me. Um, it gave me permission to look at the dark side a little bit, right? Mm. The shadow world, um, and in, in an exciting way. So certainly in the and in that seventies um, rock idiom that you know that um, that 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 music is so firmly a part of, um, and that was pervasive at that time. In the in the rest of pop culture, uh, it 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 uh, 
I found the music so visceral, like it just plugged into my viscera, right? Mm. Um, and then these fabulous characters that came out of it. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. There's something so magical about that. I just think about that uh, initial score um, and the story that unfolds inside of it um, that feels just really human. It felt like it felt like taking this this um, the Bible stories that I had learned um, and and making it into a story about people, mm -hmm. you know, a tragedy um, about people and the abuse of power. And that I think stuck with me the most. That's great. <clears throat> and were you writing or is writing something you discovered later? It's so funny. I did, I did, I wish I had some of it. I did write, I, I did start writing early, but I, I was a huge reader mm. during that period too. Like anything that could give me escape, um, really from home, I took, <laughs> frankly. Mm. Um, and so reading was a big way to do that. And, um, and I think like I was, I was one of those, you know, I, I, I look at the, um, you know, folks with the Harry Potter books, right? Like everybody, reads yeah. like for me, that was like Lord of the Rings. Like I was diving into Lord of the Rings and that sort of stuff sort of early. So the kids at school thought I was a total weirdo <laughs> because also like the, when the kids were still watching Sesame street, I was like, no, no lost in space is on at the exact same time. I'm watching that. <laughs> Like, so when kids would come over to my house after school, they would sit downstairs and watch Sesame Street, and I would run up to my parents' bedroom and watch Lost in Space. Wow. Because it was on at the exact same time, and I was not missing an episode of that. So, yeah. <laughs> I was so mature. Lost in Space and Hobbits. Like, that was my... Were you writing, level. like, science fiction, fantasy? What Like, what kind of stuff were you writing when you were... Yeah. I tended to, I, I tended to, here's what I tended to do. I tended to write poetry, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which I think was my um, affinity just to music. I think that was an early, like, it was like I was writing songs. To me, oh, I was writing songs. And then I was really um, into drawing a lot. So then oh, I would cool. draw these fantasy characters and then write the songs, <laughs> write sort of what oh, they would wow. sing and yeah, so that's I wish I had a lot of that stuff too. Uh, still, um, I once upon a time my mom had kept some of them, but I haven't been able to find them. I may maybe I'll discover them as I go through her stuff more. But mm -hmm. anyway, so yeah, I was really into drawing, um, and my writing I didn't really share with people. That was really mine. Mm. Um, it was my. It was like a you know it was like a diary. So I remember getting diaries. Um, I remember asking for diaries which uh, was sort of looked at askance, like I'm a boy and I want a diary. Like that just didn't seem to compute. Uh, which <laughs> for... is so silly. <laughs> right. Right. Why is yeah. that a gendered thing? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's somehow self-expression. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're going to stamp that out in men. No. <laughs> do not consider your emotions or your impact on the world. Like, you don't do that. Just <laughs> brazenly bust through the door and expect people are going to follow. Um, but, yeah, so that was a lot. My diaries were really full of 
sort of these poems that I would write. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. So, okay. So how, tell us how you got from that kid writing (laughs) secretly and drawing fantasy characters to the performer, Scott Bradley, that we know and love today. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, I was, so I went to the University of Iowa as an undergrad and I, um, I went on an acting scholarship. I got I got the acting scholarship that year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that tuition break was great for me because um, I wasn't coming from the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I jumped in as an actor and I was a total gay boy um, at the University of Iowa. <laughs> and um, so they were like, great, we'll cast you as the flaming homosexual in things. <laughs> um, and... Because uh, on the main stage, they were like, I, "We got nothing for you unless you know, unless you're the comedy re- comic relief." Right. And and the acting, the guy who was head of acting at the time said, "You need to, if you you need to um, gain weight." Because I was a little, I was a sort of a skinny twig, twink, and he was like, "Do you need to lift weights?" Wow. To gain weight and you should start smoking cigarettes <gasps> to bring to lower your voice or you will always be cast as homosexuals. Wow. And <laughs> so shout out, shout out there to Cosmo Catalano, head of the acting department at the time. So um, I promptly took up cigarettes. Um, oh the lifting gosh. weights didn't really take, but the cigarettes did. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> And, and I started, but what was happening is that the, you know, the playwrights workshop was there and they uh, were interested and they were making crazy, interesting stuff. And they didn't just see me as this side character, uh, gay boy. So then I was getting to play all kinds of things um, with the playwrights workshop. And so I got really enamored um, with the writing, with writing for theater. Um uh, with those people. And so, you know, and as an undergrad, so pretty quickly I learned that we, I didn't want to play guard number three in the main stage production of whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. I could, I could actually, um, play all kinds of really interesting characters, um, in, you know, in, in the new play festival and in the gallery shows. And so I really went that direction and got really, and, and so that's when I started playing myself with writing and, um, Cool. And, and creating, and then I, uh, yeah, and I, I went to England to study and, um, and took up with this drag clown troupe called the Blue Lips, there, um, and uh, that really uh, turned my head, um, and so I came back as this angry, angry queer in a dress, um, to Iowa City, and, um, and started showing up at No Shame, which was a brand new thing. Um, oh, that year while I was there. So I was part of the No Shame Players and um, I would I created this character called Margot Rose and I would come on and basically just lambast them all for being homophobic um, mm. creatures. But I was fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I also made them feel terrible about themselves. So that was my job. <laughs> um, and so that really, um, that's where all of that really started for me. Wow. I'm just so curious. Um, yeah, no shame is like, 
I've almost forgot about No Shame or what that was about. Um, I feel like when yeah. we were there, Sam, No Shame sort of was like fizzing out. Yeah. <laughs> like, there was a lot of people kind of showing up for that. Um, so I'm just cu- so curious for readers who don't know about No Shame. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about um, what it was like and like and kind of paint yeah. a picture for folks who might not yeah. know what No Shame is about? So No Shame started in uh, 86, um, uh, 1986 at the University of Iowa. And um, the theater would not give uh, us a space to do this. um, Really? To to bring people together. Yeah. And so we would meet in the parking lot on Friday night (laughs) in the back of one of our pickup trucks. Wow. So um, there was uh, so in the back of our pickup trucks, that was our stage, and then um, this the light one of the the one of the sort of uh, theater tech students, Dan Jansen, had a motorcycle, <laughs> and so he would rev the motorcycle with the headlight and keep the headlight on the back <gasps> of the truck, oh and gosh. so that was our spotlight, and. <clears throat> and so we were like, screw you. You're not going to let us be inside. Then we're going to do this in the back. And so it was really great because then uh, people would get up and try stuff. So mm. a lot of us, and as undergrads, you know, at the time, the Playwrights Workshop was really, it, it was, I mean, it was treated a bit like the Writers Workshop, right? Where it was pretty hardcore and um, um, it was, yeah, um, there was no writing. There, were, there was no writing for undergrads. Like we were not, that was not our place. So um, we're supposed to leave it to the professionals. (laughs) And um, so this was an opportunity for us to try new stuff. And also the Playwrights Workshop at the time was led by um, Bob Headley. And he had his definite favorites um, in the the workshop who regularly got the the prime slots. And Mm. they tended to be men. Who wrote of us of a certain ilk, and so the the women who were in the workshop um, would use no shame, and all of us undergrads would use no shame and try new stuff, um, and try improv and sketch, and then writing monologues and short scenes, and so we would get up in the back of this pickup truck. Um, there would be a stage manager who would collect like at the top and say, who has a piece? And they say, okay, you're number eight, you're number six. And then you chat out their name and you jump up on the pickup truck. And if people like, liked you, they'd give you a beer afterwards. And if they didn't like you, they threw their cans at you. So, oh my God. <laughs> wow. Instant feedback. <laughs> Instant feedback. It was awesome. <clears throat> and then we got huge crowds, like huge crowds started coming, um, which became kind of an embarrassment to the department. And so um, then they allowed us, let's see, which way did that go? And then they allowed us into B, if I recall, Mm. first, which was at the time, it was a a smaller studio theater there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but then that got too, at one point that was too much. Uh, They, that wasn't working. So we ended up on the steps out front. Um, and at the time before the flood, um, and the theater was recreated, the steps were sort of these long sloping down steps. And so people would stand out at the base of the steps and perform. And the stairs were where we would be an audience outside, but yeah, it was a really active space and it was real. Yeah. I mean, we were, and we were there every Friday night 
And a lot, a lot of times, if you didn't have your own piece and you were a performer, you would just show up early, <clears throat> like a half hour early. And someone like me or Jeff Good or Rebecca Gilman or, you know, whoever had work to go on would say, oh, hey, you, are you looking, <laughs> are you looking? And you'd say, yeah. And they'd say, great, here's a script. Mm. <clears throat> and so you'd get, you know, oftentimes if I didn't have a piece, I would just show up early and I'd end up in like four pieces that night. And somebody would say, here, can you do a monologue for me? And I'd say, yeah. Uh. So it was really fun and it really trained us, I think, it trained us as performers on yeah. how to jump in and make choices and cold read. And also, you know, playwrights got to um, really hear their stuff right out. Um, and, and like you said before, like really get feedback on their work. So a lot of us shaped a lot of our work that way. And then that, that was really, that went for years. And then eventually you started getting picked up at other schools. Oh, okay. No it. shame yeah. did. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then it showed up in, in, we did, we took it to New York, um, in the late eighties. Um, and so for those of us who moved directly to New York, then we created a no shame at a space that was called home for contemporary theater and art down in Soho. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we did that there <clears throat> for several years. That was really cool too. That's so cool. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about when you started to think of yourself as a playwright and how um, how you decided to go the MFA route and just a little sure. bit about that. So um, I most of my career, um, uh, I think being around the Playwrights Workshop um, and all these really great writers, mm -hmm. um, at the time I got intimidated about the writing and I was really making a name for myself as a performer, um, particularly as a genderqueer performer. Um, and so I really was just concentrating on that route. Um, and then I was directing as well. And so I was really... Um, I found myself in the development of new plays, but as a director, as a producer, um, and as a performer for about 20 years um, between New York and Seattle, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, my husband and I uh, moved to Chicago in 2004. I was directing and acting again and doing a lot of work, but I was in a, but I was I was getting to that place. Where I'm like, oh, there's, I, there's this stuff I want to do, but it's just. Nobody's doing this stuff. And so I was getting a little dissatisfied um, that I wasn't sort of scratching the itch that I was feeling. And so um, my husband, Johnny Stacks, um, uh, said, well, I, why, why, let's just, why don't you, why don't we just make what you want to make? Mm. And uh, because I think it'll sell. <laughs> so I was I like, all right. That. And so I started writing these um, these dragon puppet music spectacles, um, Carpenter's Halloween, um, which was really looking at, I, I was really interested in looking at um, our sort of the sacred cows uh, of pop culture and how they represent gender, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, and so something like Carpenter's Halloween, which was, um, I took um, the original John Carpenter um, Halloween screenplay with Jamie Lee Curtis, which is the original, right? The original final girl, the original scream queen, um, and and all of its strange um, messages around sex um, and um, and women. 
um, and I combined it with the music of the Carpenters, um, which was real schmaltzy um, teen girl longing songs at the time. And we made Carpenters Halloween, um, in which it was uh, <laughs> like the musical version of Halloween, but songs with by, by the Carpenters. Um, <laughs> and there were puppets, and I was Jamie Lee Curtis, and uh, we had a live band, and um, we... We put that up in a small cabaret space um, above Hamburger Mary's in Chicago um, in 2007. And it was, I got a Tuesday night. We were doing like Tuesday, Wednesday nights or something originally. And by the second week, week we had lines around the door to come see our show. Wow. And, and all this press was like clamoring to get in and writing raves about it <clears throat> and sort of put us on the map and then we extended and then it became an annual show that we started doing longer and longer runs in bigger and bigger spaces. Um, and in the meantime, I was doing more shows like that. Um, we were really interested in talking in sort of bringing a, a diverse crowd together, particularly when it came to age and gender and sexuality. Mm. Um, which was achievable in that neighborhood. Um, and uh, anyway, we just, our sort of popularity grew with those sort of these dragon puppet rock spectacles that we were doing. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then we did Alien Queen, which really became this huge juggernaut of a, of a hit um, and played the Metro in Chicago um, a lot. Um, so it was like we were this celebrity rock band <laughs> and that was all music of queen, um, done, um, as a, a rock opera of, uh, the first two alien films oh as rock gosh, operas. So it's really, uh, ridiculous and fun and puppets. And anyway, so I started doing the work and I, uh, and in this show, Though I got invited by, so Todd Ristah um, runs a program down in Roanoke, um, Virginia, um, theater program down there. And he invited me. He was, he's one of the people who started No Shame, one of the founders of No Shame. And so we've stayed in touch and he was like, hey, I want you to come down and talk to, we've got the MFA um, playwriting program. It's a low res program. In the summer, I want you to come down as a guest artist and talk about your work. Um, and, and work with the playwrights. And I was like, awesome, that's cool, how fun. So I went down and he um, and he said, he picked me up from the airport and he said, okay, I need you to do this spot um, on the local news channel. Um, <laughs> Blue, Ridge, Blue Ridge News at Noon, it was called. Wow. Um, he said to promoting, you know, that you're going to talk at the Rhode Elk Art Museum, do a public oh talk gosh. about your work. And, um, and that you'll be, you know, promoting, you know, the work anyway, that was going on there. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll totally, you know, it's part of what we do right in theater. You jump on the dog and pony show, um, <laughs> um, to promote, you know, what the producers are doing. So I was like, yeah, sure. Great. And so we went to the studio <clears throat> I'd just gotten in and uh, we got on a set, which was one of those fake living room sets, right, um, for the local news show. Um, and so I sat down and on the couch, and they mic'd me, and they were like, okay, we're going live. Um, and 
they're like, and, uh, you know, when the red light goes on that camera, that's when you're on. But first, we're going to intro the show. And so they went live, and they were like, hello, welcome to Blue Ridge News at noon, blah, blah, blah. Right? They're doing that stuff. And I look over at the monitor of the camera that's going to be on me, and it's got my slate underneath it. And it says, Scott Bradley, playwright. And I went, wait, that's <laughs> wrong. Like, that's, oh. well, no, they, they got that wrong. Like, that's not who I am. Right. I'm a director. Wow. I'm a performer. I'm a producer. I'm not a playwright. And uh, and so anyway, I, I, I didn't say anything. Right. I was like, oh, that's not true. But when they went to my segment, when he went to my segment, um, he was like, all right. Um, so our next guest is this person. And they started showing all these video clips mm. of my shows um, and talking about all these shows that I'd written. And it was that moment, literally live on television. That That's I went, incredible. Oh, shit. Whoa. I was brought down here because I'm a playwright. And I had no concept that that's what I'd been doing. It hadn't even occurred to you that that was no. how they were thinking about you. No, no way. No way. I thought it was because, you know, I'd been championing new work for 20 years, you know, that I'd been producing new work that I was a director and performer and because I thought no the stuff I've been doing is just ways to for us to frankly make money <laughs> and, and you know and and make work that was fun yeah uh, for me to do so I wasn't thinking but I was like oh right I right these are all scripts that I've written and um anyway and then yeah so that happened uh and that really blew my mind and I got home and literally the next week uh, Bonnie Metzger um, who was artistic director um, and an old friend of mine from New York. She was artistic director at About Face Theater at the time. She called me the next week and said, hey, we've had this workshop fall through. We've got money. Would mm. you consider writing a holiday show for the theater? Oh, wow. And that became and I was like, yeah, yeah, and I was like, yes, I will because I'm a playwright. <laughs> <laughs> people in virginia think, me, think i'm a playwright so that's right so yes i'm gonna say yes to that um so yeah isn't that wild and i i know yeah. for certain that if bonnie had asked me that and i hadn't had that trip to roanoke and had that experience i would have been like oh no 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 no, no i'll direct or oh. i'll do <clears throat> i'll work with somebody but no no that wouldn't be me anyway so that was really, and that was 2012. So that was summer of 2012 that that happened. Um, and so that really changed the trajectory of my life. And then I worked on, so We Three Lizes ran, uh, we worked on that and we're producing it in Chicago. It ran a couple of years. We did a New York um, concert version. It went to Virginia um, and I kept working on it. And frankly, I, I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the book where I wanted it. Um, mm -hmm. Like it just, you know, people really loved it and they had fun with it. But I was like, I, there's, there's just something that was not getting it to that next step to me um, uh, that made the piece really resonate, the story itself. And so I couldn't figure out what the problem was. And I remembered a playwright I used to work with um, uh, in uh, Seattle, Nick Zagoni. Um, and I remember him saying to me back when he went back and got his MFA in playwriting, he said, you know, I went back to school cause I, I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. 
Oh. Um, or, or I should correct that. I couldn't figure out. I, I couldn't figure out how to fix it. I couldn't figure out what to fix what was wrong, and that's really where I was like. I was like, I, I really want to know how to fix this, but I don't feel like I have that something. Is I, I don't have information. Mm-hmm. I don't have tools for this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what made me start thinking about um, going back to school um, for an MFA. And because I knew the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, I knew the way that it ran. I knew Art Bereka, who I uh, <laughs> who I know has been a guest on the show here. He has. Good um, <laughs> shout um, And I knew how <clears throat> I knew how the workshop was was being run. I knew Lisa Schlesinger, um, who was there. And anyway, I knew, I knew the, the cast of characters of the workshop and I knew it was a place that, um, where I could really go in and treat it like a three-year writing residency. And that's what I got Mm. to do. So, um, yeah. So that's what took me to back for my MFA. Wow. I'm like, I'm just like absorbing all this information. I'm like, wow. So what a journey, <laughs> that discovery of you becoming a, a writer player, like <laughs> in the moment, Right. that is really stunning. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, because, you know, I just feel like people, they like, you know, I'm a writer and I'm just going to move on forward and go on this journey. Cause I'm a writer. And they make this statement, but you mm. kind of like on the go, you just discover, like you realize that uh, what you're doing and what you're producing, creating, and that you're a writer, um, a playwright. (laughs) Bonnie calling you up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's fun. Um, Okay. So I guess now, where are you now in terms of like, so you're currently working on a project, share a little bit about what you're working on now. Yeah, sure. Um, So uh, the, yeah, so I, the pandemic um, changed everything um, for so many of us in the industry. Um, I had a solo show that I uh, was doing in that it was uh, premiered in Chicago in the fall of 21. Uh, there was a memoir piece uh, that was supposed to go to San Diego uh, the following year um, uh, in that, nope, that was, yeah, 2019 is when I did that. So in 2020, it was supposed to go to San Diego. We were talking about taking it to Pittsburgh and D.C. <clears throat> and then all those things just got shelved mm. um, uh, with the pandemic. And so the other project that I was interested in, in 20, right in the spring of 2020, right as things were shut down, as I met with um, the this um writer in Chicago. Her name is Tracy Bame. She is uh, editor-in-chief of the Chicago Reader. Um, She's been a really important LGBT journalist um, for almost four decades um, in Chicago. And she had written a biography of um, a pretty important gay icon uh, from Chicago named Chuck Renslow. And she had been uh, talking to another playwright friend of mine, uh, Philip Dawkins, about making a stage adaptation of the book. Um, Philip was not going to be able to work on the project, and so um, reached out to me and was like, hey, is this something you would be interested in? And I read it, devoured this book and um, this biography of Chuck, and and I was like, yes, I totally want to work on this, but I don't see a play. like This, to me, is like a 
full-on rock spectacle show. Mm, and so cool. we started discussing, uh, Tracy Bame and I started discussing that, um, and the other writer um, on the book, Owen Keenan. Um, so I started talking with them, and I um, worked out getting the rights to adapt it uh, to the stage. And... Um, and then that you know we couldn't go do go forward much with much of that during the pandemic. So um, it wasn't until and I wanted to find the right collaborator to write the music for it. Um, and I was specifically I wanted to uh, make sure that the piece was um, that represented the voices um, well behind this story. And so the biography itself is of Chuck Renslow. However, there's a major player in this, in, in the story of the birth of the gay leather culture, which is um, Chuck's partner through all those years. His name is Domingo Orejuros. He's Filipino. Um, and he was Chuck's lover and the partner in this empire they built um, in Chicago through the fifties and sixties. And um, I wasn't interested in doing a story just about the white guy, um, who was standing mm -hmm. there um, because I, I found Dom's story um, as compelling, if not more so, uh, through that journey. And so um, I set about to find a collaborator who could also bring that voice. And so mm -hmm. I began interviewing um, composers and songwriters who I felt like could bring that some of that experience forward um, that, I, that I couldn't. And so I found, I, I started interviewing people about a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, and then I, um, I, I, there's this woman whose work I'd been listening to on Spotify. She is a amazing singer songwriter. Her name is Mercy Bell. Check her out. Everybody check her oh, out. Okay. <laughs> She's on Spotify. Um, you can go to her website, mercybell.com. Um, and I'd been listening to her. Um, she does her own stuff as sort of country, singer, songwriter, um, folk music. Um, it's really beautiful uh, stuff. And I heard a, heard a um, interview with her. She was doing one of the, I don't know, a, um, tiny desk docs. Um, and she was talking about being a queer Filipina um, and had a background in theater. And I was like, What? What? <laughs> so listening to more of her stuff and some of her more rock heavy stuff. And I was like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I love her music already and her lyrics. Um, and it just wasn't in the genre that I was really looking at for this show, uh, specifically um, the stuff that I knew of hers. But then I found out that she also had that, those identities. And so I, I got a hold of her and I was like, um, can we? Can we chat? Would you have any interest in this project? And she was so enthusiastic. So we started working together just this past month. Yeah. So we, we just we just wrote our um, um, we actually together decided that uh, the protagonist is Dom, uh, is Domingo, um, not Chuck uh, for the oh, story. Um, and that. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, we just we just got done writing Dom's I Want song. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Taking the first hit at that. Um, and she's just bringing all the guns. Um, uh, so she and I are, are sharing um, credit for lyrics, and then she'll, she's writing the music, and I'm writing the book. 
That's so exciting. It's so super exciting. And there's a, so we're putting together, so there's a commissioning team that's actually, because this was one of the things is musicals are so hard and they take so much time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ah, we need to get paid for this. And so they're putting together, so about bass and management, Johnny Stacks, who's a producer and um, the writers of the biography are really working together and they're putting together a nonprofit sort of group that's going to raise the money for us for a writing commission, um, as well as to pay for, um, so we're going to have, we're going to workshop in early March um, and then we're going to do a workshop down in Nashville, which is where Mercy's at with musicians and then... um, yeah, and then to get the aim is to get to a uh, an equity workshop at the end of 2022. Oh, like tomorrow? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like tomorrow. <laughs> that's that's coming up fast. Very exciting. I know. It's really exciting. So, so um, you said musicals are really difficult, and I was just like, yeah, of course they are. But I'm wondering because I don't know anything about musicals. Yeah. It just seems like it would be hard. But I'm wondering <laughs> if you can just. Um, describe some of the extra challenges that come with writing a musical, collaborating with somebody, you know, mm. writing a adaptation of a biography, you know, based on oh real goodness. people. What are some of the things that are new in this project that you haven't had to think about before? <laughs> yep. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> the challenges of a musical. So the first challenge, which is something that I um, I have that I struggle with, um, uh, so one of the big challenges for me is that musicals um, are so are, are in some ways closer I find to television than they are to theater. Hmm. In that, musicals tend to really be character driven. Mm-hmm. Um, like good television, right? It's all about the characters. And and that's not to say that other things aren't, but theater, you know, when you've got two hours, you tend to be like, okay, I, or an hour and a half, right? I'm going to write this arc, um, this plot um, that we need to be getting through. And I mm-hmm. find that um, in musicals, like one of the pro- my problems with Three, Three Lies is, is I put together this really fabulous plot, but then you got all these songs and songs don't really progress plot. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Songs progress character. You know, songs are like internal monologues, right? So they, you might get a shift that happens um, to the interior of a character, Mm -hmm. but their external actions may not change quickly. And so in musicals, often the plot itself is quite simple, Mm -hmm. but what's happening for the characters is incredibly dense. So, uh, which I, I, I would say um, like TV or like a novel, right? Like a novel can spend three pages just talking about what that person's thinking about right. um, for the day. And they may not actually get anything accomplished. Um, and so musicals get, get it, give you a chance, you know, the, mu- the songs are the subtext. And so <clears throat> um, that means that you've got to really find a way to, to keep the plot as uncomplicated as possible so that people can really take the interior journey with the character. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that makes it, and that makes it hard because I find as a playwright, I'm ready to go like, okay, what's going to, you know, what's the next thing, right? That's the next obstacle to their want, right? Like this character wants 
you know, that cup of coffee? What things are we going to get them put in their path to keep them from that? And a musical is like, mm, don't put too many things in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> let, 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 let what's happening inside them stop them, right? Let, let, let that journey be the thing that happens. So, because um, usually songs in a musical take you vertically in story rather than horizontally, if that makes sense. Oh, like that's, yeah, that's a great so You're going deep. So you're going deep into a character. Um, but when you come out the other side, they're still standing right there in the same place they were before the song. Um, hmm. So what's changed? You know, what's changed is now they have direction, right? They've decided to take an action. Um, but And usually the action is not sung. The action is then, actually means less, is less important than their decision to take an action. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. So that I find a challenge. Um, and when it comes to, Biography, um, I really learned this working on my solo show, Hoof, um, was, you know, working on my own, off my own biography. Um, I had the really great fortune. I, I when, when About Face said that they would produce it, I was like, okay, well, I want Che Yu to direct it. And mm. they were like, um, okay, we'll check, but that <laughs> probably is not going to happen. Um, I was like, I know, but may, but I, my thought was like, maybe Che will at least recommend somebody because mm. Che Yu is just known nationally for his uh, work uh, helping sculpt solo um, work mm. um, and autobiographical pieces. So, I was like, oh, if I could get Che Yu on this. And um, so About Face sent Che, uh, uh, Che's agent my script. And, and, and you know, thankfully, Che wrote back and was like, yeah, this is cool. Let's do this. Um, and so I have to say that most of what I learned doing bi autobiography or biographical stuff comes from working with Che for those couple of years as we developed my show Packing. Um, and a lot of that is... is um, there's a whole lot of stripping away of artifice that is required mm -hmm. um, in it. Um, I find that uh, stripping away of artifice is important, <laughs> is really essential. Um, so you can really get to the meat uh, of, of, of what's driving this person forward. Mm -hmm. um, and so flowery language, poet, poetry, you know, I came with pages of this sort of poetic um, interpretation of my life. <laughs> and, 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 and Che would say, yep, so there's three lines in here we can use. And then, <laughs> and the rest of that is beautiful. Save that when the memoir is published, but on stage that will be deadening. So go <laughs> home and, and be much more honest. Um, and also real life is banal. And it's goes it, like things happen in repetition and, you know, you, you, you win, then you lose and you win, then you lose and you win, you lose. And it's not dramatic, frankly, it's yeah. really freaking boring. And so how can you take dramatic license with a life that gets to the truth of what gets to the truth of what that life story may, we, that life story may tell us as opposed to the facts of that life oh that's yeah that makes sense and so you do want to reorder you know so I, I did have to take dramatic license with my own life right and say okay i'm going to reorder a few of these yeah. events 
because really um, uh, we need to see the care. We, we uh, as an audience, to be taken on that journey to go inside, we really have to feel like that character is really going through a crucible, right, to see transformation. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you need to sort of not mention the bright spots along the way there. <laughs> Right? You'd be, like, you'd be like, no, life was hell and hell and it, it got worse. And, and then it got better, right? Um, because you need to take the, the audience wants to go with you on those right. journeys. They want to feel that catharsis that happens. So um, that I learned just a lot through that. And so I've, I've really been using that as I've, so I've been looking, there's a couple of different real life stories that I'm, that I've, that I'm adapting one for TV and one, and then one for the, the, this musical um, that I'm having to look at. And, and if it weren't for that work with Che, I wouldn't know how to begin, but really that mo roadmap that he set me up in doing my own memoir piece is really informing me when I'm looking at these, like, Oh, what do we do? Right? Like how do we structure this in such a way that can take people that I have to keep remembering that the journey we're on is not, say for the leather daddy show, what right now we're titling leather daddy, um, <laughs> um, that for that show, right. I, I don't need to see the, I don't need to see all the facts of their life in order. Right. We mm -hmm. want to see what, um, what really made them the people that they became and the community that they built. And so the best way to do that is <laughs> needs, needs a little dramatic license, frankly. Um, there's a, uh, writer, performer, um, Tim Miller, um, who uh, was one of the NEA four, mm -hmm. um, who lost, mm -hmm. who had to return his money for obscenity clauses in 1990. That's um, mm -hmm. sort of one of our important sort of pioneers of that world. But he, and he, all of his work is autobiographical. And he has this great quote where he says, everything Everything in this show is true, and some of it actually happened, <laughs> which I think is a really like is a really great condensation of that idea. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's me working on real life stories. Amazing. Well, I'm so excited to see it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like the pandemic just? Like, I don't know, like, has it changed your process or, like, just slow things down for you in a, you know, I don't know. It has. Yeah. It has in, in, in this way. In this way, in that I, I am only interested in writing live, writing for live experiences, um, if it is an experience you have to have live. Uh, in other words, and by live you mean what? Like to have an audience um, come in and experience room. a piece. Yeah, in the same yeah, room. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it has to be something so important to that to be live, right? That has to be shared with the community. So, frankly, my more realistic uh, work, or even I don't know, even the magic realism stuff that I've written, I'm like, nope, this is a film. Like this, mm. I can make into a film. Like right now, there's a play of mine, Seed that uh, I got money to adapt it to a film um, and like that uh, I, it's so, it's so much better, frankly, mm. in a as a screenplay than it was as a play. And I'm more interested in it now. And I feel like um, I feel the same about theater. Like the, 
the plays and playwrights right now that are that I'm really interested in. Uh, they're things that you have to see live. Um, that they're an experience. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in immersive work more now than I was before, too. Like really immersive experience stuff. So like my early Scooty and Jojo stuff, um, right, which was that's that was the name of our company, the Scooty and Jojo show that when we made Alien Queen and Carpenter's Halloween, Mollywood. Anyway, all these kind of those kind of shows, they were always in these spaces where people were singing along, where mm. the action was in the audience, that we invited people to be part of the, uh, you know, experience. And and that immediacy, I think, was part of what made it accessible and fun for people. Um, and also, like, it made it like you were going to a rock concert, right? Like, you know, I can have, I don't know, Mercy Bill's album, and I love it, but going to see her live... Right, yeah. and she's singing right to me. It's going to be an experience I still want to have, even though I know those songs. Yeah. So that's how I feel about theater right now, because I, I'm really not interested in going to see a kitchen sink drama on stage. Mm -hmm. I'm just not. Um, and this pandemic has meant like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, what's my risk? <laughs> what's the risk that I have to, you know, go through to go see this live theater. So like, you know, I was in LA and um, they brought over the British production of uh, everybody's talking about Jamie, which is the musical um, that's about, it's based on the documentary um, uh, of the boy who wanted to wear a dress to prom um, in working class Sheffield, mm. England. And um, so they made a musical about that story and it's really fun. Um, and so it was its first American sort of sit down because the pandemic had stopped it um, on the West End a couple of years ago. So they brought over that production. And so I got to see it down at the Amundsen Center in L.A. a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was so great. Like that needed to be live. And we all had to show our vaccine cards <laughs> to get in and everybody mm -hmm. wearing masks wow. in there. And it was really exciting to be in a space um, with that kind of live action happening. Um, and that felt important to be live. Yeah. And so like, like the leather daddy show, like we really want that to be an immersive experience. Like, Oh, it, like let's bring in a leather mart, you know, around it. Like they do at IML international Mr. Leather in Chicago every summer. Right. Let's, cool. let's engage community stories, um, around this as well. Let's find ways that, yeah, that, that sort of make it something you have to go experience live. That's how I'm feeling about that. Oh, that's so fun. I'm just so excited <laughs> for when we can go to things again and not be afraid. Right? <laughs> um, okay, so before we wrap up, uh, one fun question we like to ask everybody is, if you were to have a dinner party and you could invite three playwrights, living or dead, who would you pick? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say right now, if I were to have a dinner party, um, the people I want to talk to, I want to talk to um, Christopher Chen. Mm. Um, I think he's uh, incredible um, uh, and so interesting. I want to talk to Jeremy O'Harris. Oh, yeah. Oh. And I want to talk to um, Audrey Cephaly. 
Oh, what a good group. I really do. I want to talk about writing with those three people because I'm so, they do such different stuff. Um, yeah. And if I could have a fourth person, it would be Michael R. Jackson, who yes. wrote A Strange Loop. Like that, like uh, they just, what they're doing with theater, I just think is each one of them is just doing something so different. Um, and, and I feel like their work all, I feel like all of their work are things that I've seen, I've seen work of all of theirs live on stage and I, and I go, yeah, that I want to, I want to see their thing live. Like I want to, like their stuff is, is, I feel like they write things that are meant to be live. And I think they'll continue writing things that are meant to be live. They're exciting. I love this. I'm so excited about this dinner. I'm going to be yeah, like, right? you can come too. Looking in the window. No, 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 no. Sarah, Sarah and Sam are totally invited to that dinner party. <laughs> um, what's the main course uh, at this dinner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Um, oh. All right. <laughs> I'll have to think about it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> Sarah's only coming if there's really good food. <laughs> please, please send your dietary restrictions. Um, all right. So um, we'll move on to our final uh, section of our show is glistens. Um, okay. It's where we share the highlights of the week. It could be anything. It could be a headline to something you discovered online, anything. Um uh, so I could start first. Um, my my glisten is uh, something I just started to do like literally yesterday. Um, I've been because with sketch comedy, life there slowly coming back. Um, I'm trying to get back into it, and I want to write jokes more. And so I've been looking at. Um, well, first let me let me rewind a little bit. So. I follow this artist, uh, this writer, Karen Chi, on Twitter. She's a really funny comedy writer. And there was an interview with her where she said that um, she would write three pages, or like 80 jokes every day. Whoa. By 1 p.m. <laughs> like 1 p.m. Like every day. And, I, and, and based on like headlines, news, and stuff like that, right? And I was like, okay – that sounds like a good exercise. I want to try that. Whoa. And I tried it yesterday and I wrote five jokes in like three hours. And I was like, this is, this is like a whole other muscle. I can't do it. But I want to try, like beat my number every time, like try to write more jokes. But but I was like, that is insane. Like to write three pages, 70, 80 jokes every day. Um, and I could barely do five. <laughs> like, but yeah. Um, wow. But that's my glisten. Do you think it is kind that's of good. like, push-ups right yeah. Yeah, it's like, like push-up, right it you is start it's, with it's five like and then you'll start to be able to do more every day yeah that's my hope <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep so five so far five is the number to beat i think i could okay. do it i think that's, that's great and i I'm, I'm i'm going to just i'm gonna go out there on a limb and think she didn't start with 80 mm. right yeah so true yeah. i think she probably yeah. worked her way up to 80 Hmm. Could be That's true. so true. Yeah. Just guessing. Just right. guessing. <laughs> good, good educated guess. You know what we learn in, in yoga? Start where you are. Just start where you are. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so true. Um, well, my lesson is not something I discovered. It's something Sarah Cho told me about. And I'm really only ever going to watch anything on Netflix that Sarah Cho tells me to watch because she gets me. 
And so I, Sarah told me to watch Sweet Tooth, which was a show on Netflix about children who are born part animal. It has to do with like a virus, some apocalyptic times, people walking through the wilderness, trains. I mean, it's just everything I love. So good. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed that show. What about you, Scott? Well, I di- I enjoyed that show too. When oh, you said too. Out, yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I totally binged on that show. Yeah. Yeah. Worthwhile. So, um, all right. So, my lesson is, I've been um, going down a Spotify wormhole um, as I'm looking. F- I'm I'm looking for a film composer for okay. this project. This other project that I'm doing, <clears throat> and so I've been going down wormholes of different film composers, and I discovered. Um, uh, this uh, composer, her name is Midori Hirano, last name H-I-R-A-N-O. Okay. She's a Berlin-based musician, composer, producer. She does stuff for film, but also for dance, um, and then her own compositions. It's classical. Um, it's sort of contemporary classical, but she mixes electronic with acoustic um, instrumentation, and it's just – her stuff is just stunning. It's beautiful. Um, it's interesting. Um, I find it, um, I find it really soothing and at other times really exciting. Anyway, I've been, I just keep listening to her, um, this week. So that is, that's somebody I would encourage people to check out. That's great. I will. I'm not on Spotify, but I, I'll find another wherever you find your music. Cool. Well, uh, Scott, thank you so much for coming on our show. And oh, where you. can our listeners find you? Yeah, you can find uh, my uh, website, Scott Bradley Inc. That's I-N-K dot com um, is where you can find me. Um, uh, I will return to social media soon. Um, then, Are you know, taking like, a break? <laughs> I've been on a break for about a year and a half. Oh my god! Doesn't it feel wow. so good? It's it does. And now that I'm, you know, the pandemic, um, and I was with family, and it just was not a helpful place um, for my well mental well being. And so now that mm. we're going to start producing again, and I'm going to start working like I need to, I need to um, uh, wade back into the social media pool, uh, which is fine and it's great. Um, um, but I'm not posting or any of that quite yet. So that'll start to happen as events are coming um, up for me. I find um, that kind of promotion and getting to see what other people are doing um, as things start to open back up, then I'll re-engage. Yeah. But, um, I'm not there. I, I can't be in it for the political um, uh, shouting matches. Like it just, <laughs> it makes me depressed yeah, and no. yeah. eat a quart of ice cream. So yeah. That's my right. my husband could tell when I've been on the on social media way too long because I'll just start yeah. out of nowhere. I'll just be like, "Get rid of plastics! No more plastics! <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything in this house, like everything we have, we got to get rid of it." He's just like, "Have you? How long have you been on Instagram?" I was like, "Too long, a little too long." I know, I know, <laughs> but um, I'll just my my behavior would definitely change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm cert- I'm certainly an advocate of people taking breaks. Take yeah. the break. Take the break when you can. That's what I know. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks, Thank Scott. You, Scott. Of course. Oh, you can do that. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. 